Welcome to episode six of the Infectious Historians podcast. Today's episode will be joined by a sociologist on the differing effects of the ongoing coronavirus pandemic on people from different demographic and geographic backgrounds. Today's episode is going to be a more thematic episode where we look into some of the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on people today. Although we're historians and focus on history, reflecting on the present pandemic can and already has provided insights about our work in the past. So we'll introduce ourselves again. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Smirnova. Michelle is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, which is located in Missouri and not Kansas for our international listeners. And it's also home to the Super Bowl champion Kansas City Chiefs, who came back to beat that most evil of teams, the San Francisco 49ers. And that's an American football reference for all our international listeners. Michelle received her PhD from the University of Maryland in sociology. Before starting at UMKC, she worked as a research sociologist at the U.S. Census Bureau and the Center for Survey Measurement. She's a medical and cultural sociologist with broad research interests. In her work, she examines how some large-scale institutions in our world, such as medicine, science, the nation-state, and media, all differentially construct bodies, behaviors, and identities. And she studies how people, the ones who own those bodies, react to, cope with, or resist these definitions. Michelle's interests are wide-ranging, and she, she has published an impressive and extensive number of articles, including on prescription drug use and abuse, trust and problems with data collection agencies in the U.S., and perhaps my favorite titled one on Soviet humor, entitled, quote, What is the Shortest Russian Joke? Communism. Michelle also has a book that should be published next year, entitled The Prescription to Prison Pipeline, an intersectional analysis of medicalization and criminalization of pain. So hi, Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me, guys. So we usually start our episodes with, with an update on what's happening, where we are at, uh, focusing on COVID-19. So Merle, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, so last week, it was actually my birthday. Which was, Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, that was interesting. Obviously sad to some extent, since I didn't get to see anyone in person aside from uh, my direct family. But I actually got to see, quote unquote, uh, more people virtually than I normally would have. Yeah, as someone who participated in the said birthday party, it was good enough to keep me up until 5 a.m. because of time differences. So just saying. (laughs) I'm glad you you could join me. There was a, a whole ceremony of roasting me with interesting stories from my earlier life. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it was also, I have to say, the whole experience kind of interesting and different in the sense that, you know, I, I got to see a lot of people such as yourself, who I normally obviously would not have seen at a birthday party. I probably wouldn't have even invited you, Lee, um, given that you were in uh, Jerusalem and I know you obviously weren't going to physically come. Um, so it was a very different birthday party, but actually quite nice. And that's that's one thing I, I wonder. I mean, I'm not a sociologist as Michelle is, but I wonder how it's going to change how people do gatherings moving forward. Because I think, you know, I, I lived with a number of people in what we referred to as the yellow house when I was uh, just out of college. And all of them were on the, on the Zoom call and saw, you know, and saw me for my birthday, which was the first time I think we'd done it in over five years. So that's actually kind of interesting. So what was this yellow house? Was it just a yellow house or is there a better story behind that? Uh, It was just a yellow house, actually. But (laughs) it was uh, four of us lived in a a four bedroom house uh, in Washington, D.C. right after college. Um, And we referred to it as the yellow house because the house was yellow. Um, Very original name. And uh, what about you, Lee? What's, uh, What's happening in Jerusalem these days? So here in Israel, things are slowly moving back to normal. Shops, our shops are supposed to be reopened next week, as well as barbers and hair salons. Uh, Schools should open a week from Sunday. Uh, So that's one thing. Another thing is that that people are still kind of concerned about COVID-19 spreading further. So Ramadan, which is a month-long Muslim holiday in which people abstain from foods and drinks in the day and eat and drink at night, that began yesterday, and there's been a lot of efforts on, on all levels to prevent people from going outside and spending time with their families or praying in mosques. 
And also, my, my partner almost had coronavirus. What, oh, what, wow. is, what does almost have coronavirus mean? Yes. <laughs> so one evening, her fever suddenly and quickly went up. So we called the coronavirus hotline. And there's a long story, which I'll abbreviate here. But navigating the state health systems was complicated. It always seems complicated, and, and it, it was even more so this time. We called them in late evening. They told us to wait until tomorrow. It was too late for them to actually send someone to, to come test her. But luckily, by the next morning, her fever disappeared. So the doctor she, she spoke to said she should be fine and doesn't have to get tested. But the entire story made us think about the asymptomatic carriers of COVID, COVID-19. And since she didn't really leave our home at all, if she would have had or if she had or if she has coronavirus, I have no idea. It's likely I would be the person who infected her. So, yeah, we, we, we thought quite a bit about that. So are you going to yeah. get tested? Probably not. Probably not. Okay. Yeah, it, it didn't seem as serious. And the doctor we spoke to was sounded as if it was more or less okay. So where are you now, Michelle, and what's happening? I'm in Kansas City, Missouri, as you um, astutely pointed out, in the Missouri side. And we're kind of dealing with similar issues that you guys are dealing with, but anticipating um, the city opening it up in a couple weeks. For us, it's still, I think, three weeks away. But um, because we're on a state border, um, the state of Kansas, I think, has announced that they would open start to reopen some businesses starting May 3rd. Um, but our city has um, decided May 15th. Um, and so it's sort of this coordination of efforts and kind of trying to understand what exactly it'll look like when it opens up, because obviously it's not going to be returning to any sort of normal, um, like what sort of measures need to be in place. But um, yeah, I know I was reading an article about Italy and how shelter in place has been harmful for families in which someone has it, that like the assumption is everyone else will get it and that that can put people at risk. And then, yeah, to your point, Merle, about connecting with people far away, that there's been a lot of conversation about, well, when this is all over, if this is all over, what is the world we're going to return to? And that we don't have to return to the world as it was. And one of those things is, recognizing that we have the technology to like bridge these divides um, that we already are moving around all the time, their transportation, but like having a Zoom dinner with friends on the coast. Like I live in the middle of the country. Um, me and my partner are from the coasts and our friends and family are scattered everywhere. And I think something we've learned through this is while we can't be physically present with people that we can be connected to them. And that's actually one reason why sociologists really hate the term social distancing because it's not social distancing, it's physical distancing, um, that we want to maintain those social ties and the social ties are things that maintain our physical and emotional health. So um, Zoom is one wonderful way to do that. If I remember correctly, Kansas City has also this weird thing where it's kind of arbitrarily divided between the two states, right? It's just basically like a street in which you wouldn't even know that you're going. So that must take particular types of coordination between two different states and two different cities. Absolutely. I actually live four blocks from, you do know you're crossing because it's called State Line Road. However, it's very arbitrary. And I walk across it, the actual major, one of the most major hospitals here, um, KU, um, Kansas University Hospital is straddling the two states. I think so half of it is in Kansas and half of it is in Missouri. So yes, the coordination efforts are very challenging. Okay, so let's start off. So before we begin, would you mind for our international listeners to give us all a brief overview of the American health system? I know it's a huge topic, but still just a brief overview of how it operates, because it might be a bit different from what other people are used to. Um, yes, that, that's a great question. I'd be happy to um, explain. The U.S. is unique um, in our healthcare system in a number of ways and not for the benef- um, better in many ways. We are one of the only industrialized nations without a universal healthcare system. Um, and so that means that people, um, not everyone in the United States is insured. And um, 
that people typically receive insurance through their employer. And there were um, great efforts to increase the number of people who were insured um, under the Affordable Health Care Act that was passed by the Obama administration. But despite even those efforts, still many people remain uninsured. And part of an additional layer to this issue is insurance is very expensive, um, even through um, the system. So many people can't afford even with to pay for their insurance, um, but they also can't pay for their medications. And this is in part because we don't have that universal health care um, that the government cannot negotiate with drug companies in order to lower the cost of drugs. Um, one that has received a lot of attention recently is insulin, um, that there's a monopoly of insulin production and that um, this is a drug that people rely on to survive and that it's unaffordable to a lot of people. So there's that element. Um, we also are also one of two nations, I believe the other one is New Zealand, that allows direct-to-consumer advertising. So that means drug companies can uh, advertise on television and magazines directly to consumers, which really um, transforms the relationship between patients and doctors to more of consumers and doctors so they can go in and specifically ask for something. We also have a lot of um, direct-to-prescriber medication uh, or direct-to-prescriber advertisements and initiatives where um, drug companies can reach out to doctors and send them on vacations or really try and encourage them to prescribe some drugs over others. So those are a couple of the ways in which we are distinctive. And how regulated is this system? What do you mean by that? Is there any government oversight on what drug companies are doing, for example? So there is the the FDA um, is our federal regulation that really um, that's part of the reason it's it takes so long for drugs to be developed in the United States or vaccines that um, they're really rigorous clinical trials required that require a lot of capital to get involved um, and it takes a long time um, to prove that it's efficacious but also that it's not harmful to people. So there is quite a bit of regulatory oversight, but the way that the system is designed is that only really big um, drug companies that have a lot of capital have the capacity to compete. And so then they also have the ability to maintain monopolies on patents, et cetera, and then to um, sort of hike up the prices of those drugs. Yeah. I mean, one other thing that you touched upon that seems to be clearly going to be a problem moving forward is if whatever the official unemployment rate is, it's got to be at least 15 or 20%. I'm seeing numbers thrown around like that. If most people are getting their insurance through their employers and 15 or 20% of the country is no longer employed, that's going to create a significant problem, um, both short, medium, and long-term as well. Absolutely. And I think that's something that it's been great that the federal government has been stepping up in this regard in terms of increasing um, unemployment benefits. Um, I know in the state of Missouri, it's typically $300 a week you would receive in an unemployment. Um, and now it's close to $1,000, which is wonderful. It yeah. makes a huge difference, but it also draws our attention to the fact that what about all those people who were unemployed prior to COVID-19 who didn't receive enough money in order to survive? And so, yeah, it's drawing bringing into focus a lot of these issues that the unemployment benefits were untenable, but also that tying health insurance to employers is untenable. And so the hope, again, returning to this idea of what is the world we want to build after this, that why is why are we okay with providing these um, services now in the wake of COVID-19 that we weren't um, comfortable with providing before? Yeah. So Staying a little broad before we delve into maybe the specifics of, of COVID-19 in particular, I guess before all this, are there common trends in maybe who gets infected and dies from different infectious diseases in the United States? And maybe are there significant ways you can kind of tease out these trends for us to look at them? Sure. So you're asking just about infectious diseases in general, not just COVID. Yeah. So before this yeah. started, right, I think one thing we've seen is that, as you said, people who have less access to healthcare are simply more likely to be affected by this. So we'll talk about that in a second, but it's kind of a, a process that builds upon itself. So I'm just kind of curious if you'd be willing to tease out before this all happened, and then we'll get to what's happening now. 
Sure, sure. So the same way they are talking right now with COVID that um, the disease doesn't discriminate and it doesn't, but our health care system does. And so does our um, the social structures in the United States. And so people who don't have health care, um, who don't have who can't afford to go to a doctor, um, who work um, wage labor jobs and they can't take time off from work to go to a doctor, who can't afford medication, who have to take a bus to get somewhere, who need um, child care to look after their kids so that they can do that. So disproportionately, the poor um, and people of color in the United States um, are more likely to work in these low-wage labor jobs that are less likely to provide those sort of benefits. They're also um, Black Americans and uh, Latinx Americans are much more likely to live near toxic um, sites like coal plants. They are exposed to much higher levels of environmental toxins. Also, the impacts of racism and poverty itself can, the stress can negatively impact um, somebody's health. So there are many ways in which our um, inequalities are playing out in terms of health inequalities. So when you're saying that there's a significant difference between these groups, how significant is the difference? Are we talking about 5%, 10%, or are we talking about, let's say, broadly speaking, 50%, 100%? I mean, where, how, how big are these differences? I guess, how big can they get? Sure. So if, if we're talking about environmental toxins and we're talking about um, impact on childhood development, um, I believe one in 10 Americans um, suffers, one in 10 American children suffer from asthma, while I believe it's um, six in 10 African-American um, children do maternal mortality rates. If you're an African-American woman giving birth, I think you're two and a half times, maybe much larger, um, two and a half times as likely to die in pregnancy. So um, those are some of the figures. That's like a very significant difference. Yes. Yeah. And and as you said, I there's also, I, I assume, both within those categories and other ones, there's also class differences, presumably as well. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think the likelihood of exposure to toxins is very much um, tied to class. But in this country, um, class and race are really intimately entwined. So that's part of the reason that we talk about um, both those things. But yeah, I think people who are working uh, multiple jobs, we often talk in sociology about the feminization of poverty, that we often think of poverty as a masculine um, thing. But actually, especially now with COVID-19, the majority of people who work in service, so childcare, grocery, restaurants, um, tend to be women. And also um, the majority of the poor are women. So that we can see how, um, to your point, that it's class- um, but then class is um, tied to gender and race and all of these other axes of inequality. Yeah, that's and, that's been a lot of stuff I've seen on on like home healthcare workers, for example, um, seem to be obviously disproportionately impacted by a lot of what's happening. Yeah. And how much do we know about immigrants? Is there enough data to to tell? I mean, how bad it is for them? Sure. Yeah. So um, I know there's been a lot of attention recently on undocumented immigrants, um, particularly farm workers, given that these are essential workers and our food supply chain relies on these people and just how quickly um, the narrative has changed from these people are quote unquote aliens or illegal and that they don't deserve to be here. And now they are essential workers. And they're essential workers. They also are not eligible for these unemployment benefits, for the paid sick leave, for the stimulus. Um, so they are people here who are um, really, their lives are at risk um, having to go to work. And they also don't have the ability to leave now that um, borders, it's more difficult to um, travel in and out of the country unless you are a citizen. So that's one point about undocumented workers um, I think immigrants in general all over the world are being trapped, um, that there's reduction in flights, it's really difficult to return home, and in certain countries, people are losing their income, so others are trying to support them. So I think it's really impacting immigrants everywhere, and absolutely in the United States as well. So to follow up one of the points you, you had earlier, and kind of to, to move along a bit, 
Could you speak a bit about the interests of drug companies in developing drugs and cures within this system, within this broadly unequal system in which you need to have insurance, I guess, to, to buy these drugs? Sure. So there, there is quite a bit of incentive for the drug companies, especially the ones that have the capital to do this research, because um, once it, the first drug on the market um, that's been FDA approved, they can set the price. Um, they, there are also a lot of regulations that make it possible for monopolies of those patents. And because the U.S. doesn't have the uh, the ability. They could theoretically, like they negotiate with Medicare, which is our program for um, senior citizens, or Medicaid, which is our program for um, low-income uh, Americans. So when there are these government programs, they have the capacity to negotiate with drug companies because they are purchasing a large number of them. But because the majority of Americans are going through these different private insurers that we don't have those negotiating abilities. And as a result, drug companies can charge quite a bit for these drugs. So insurance companies cover parts of it, but it's very profitable um, to be the first to market, particularly for drug companies. Yeah, I'm always struck by the arbitrariness of, of billing. For example, whenever you have anything done at a hospital, they always send you, what are they called? EEOBs or the explanation of benefits where they list out all the costs, but it's not a bill. It's just here's some stuff that costs some stuff arbitrarily. And then at some point you actually get a bill from people much later chopped up into parts based on, you know, the, the doctor, the anesthesiologist, the place that's like done the labs and the like facility itself all just arbitrarily end up sending you a bill for whatever arbitrary amount done in like some random sense in the end. It's always right. It's like $25 and eight cents or whatever. So the entire system kind of disadvantages the people who are already disadvantaged. Absolutely. Okay. And then one last question, I guess, before we maybe delve more into the COVID-19 side of things. What's the role the U.S. state or government, I guess, plays in infectious diseases and research to stop them? I mean, how much are they doing versus, say, the, the drug companies, for example? Sure. Well, the first thing that comes to mind is um, vaccinations and um, vaccines are really a huge part of the public health campaign to manage infectious diseases. I think beginning in the second half of the 20th century, the states, all 50 states now have um, regulations for childhood immunization. And I think maybe a dozen infectious disease, or not just infectious diseases, but um, vaccinations that children have to receive prior to entry to school. And um, part of the reason for that is um, the idea of developing so-called herd immunity. And you've heard that term kind of discussed in response to COVID-19, but not being used accurately. The way that herd immunity works is if the majority of people are vaccinated for something, then theoretically, if there is a vulnerable population, someone who is pregnant, someone who is immune compromised, who is undergoing chemotherapy, that they are at less risk because the majority of people are vaccinated. Or if there is one person who is unvaccinated and one person who has the measles, that if the majority of the people between them are vaccinated and therefore immune, that it's unlikely that unvaccinated person will become sick. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. I, I keep seeing that herd immunity point made, but it's a herd immunity point is if we all get COVID-19 and that will create herd immunity, which is sounds like a completely different way to approach this and actually just not even remotely the same thing. Exactly. And we have no reason to believe that even people who have the antibodies or who have had it are necessarily immune, that there's been um, a number of people across the world who had it and then they have been, they're not sure if they've been reinfected or if it just flared back up, but we know so little bit of, about COVID-19 um, to understand how that immunity works, but the way that herd immunity has worked in terms of the public health campaigns has never been, let's get everybody sick. It's been, let's develop a vaccine and protect everyone. Um, so that's one major way in which the government has sort of tried to prevent infectious disease through um, immunizations that require um, things that we know about and getting involved. So how does the interplay between the federal and the local levels of government work? I think those are mostly state policies. I think it's state by state whether or not you need certain vaccinations in order to get 
into school. And so they have been fairly standardized across states, but I'm not an expert actually in this, but my understanding is that there is less federal oversight. And this is actually an issue we have in the United States that we also have a significant anti-vaxxing community. They tend to be more affluent, educated, white families that choose not to vaccinate their children um, because in part pushing back on this standardized one-size-fit-all approach that their children are unique and that they deserve that maybe vaccination is not right for them. And vaccinations protect individuals, but it's also a public good. It's you're protecting other people by becoming vaccinated. So in the United States, we similarly have this very exceptionalism outlook that Americans are, they really hold fast to their freedom um, and their liberty, their um, ability to do what they want to do. And even if that will harm themselves and others. And so we see that um, play out with the anti-vaccine community. But I think that's part of the reason we don't have a lot of federal regulations because it's the protection of states' rights, but also individual rights. And you have the individual right to die, but we don't talk as much about the individual right to kill somebody else by your choices. Yeah, it's Lee. I don't know if you know this, but actually, while you can't drink in any state till you're 21, it's technically all state laws. There was ways the federal government coerced the states into doing that, but technically all the states could make up their own age. Yeah, they kind of withheld funding or said they would withhold some traffic or road funding. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what happened is they basically tied it to interstate commerce from what I understand legally. But yeah, in theory, every state you could let people drink at five, I guess. Don't think that'll happen. But yeah, that won't happen anytime soon. So in this context, how would you characterize the current federal administration stance toward infectious diseases before and during COVID-19? Has it changed, for example? Um, Yes. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Just a small um, question. Just a small question. Sure. Um, The Trump administration disbanded the pandemic response um, team. There's been some sort of controversy of whether it was fully disbanded or reorganized, but there was a response office that I think was established under the Obama administration to deal specifically with Ebola and maybe SARS, no, uh, H1N1. But so we were woefully unprepared when um, COVID-19 became, I don't want to say relevant to the United States, but really elicited fear that this is something we're dealing with um, on the ground. So the federal government was not prepared. And we've seen sort of how that has played out since that it's been sort of haphazard, really unclear communication. There has been no federal move to have um, social distancing measures in place, a federal lockdown. I know a lot of other countries have had those, so it's really fallen to the states. There has been no unified federal um, response, and so as a result, each state has had to take this into their own hands, and that has really contributed to this contradictory and piecemeal approach that is going to be largely ineffective in that um, certain states, I know initially there was a lot of attention to Florida, whose beaches remained open at the height of college spring breaks. So college students were out um, drinking, making out, hanging out on the beach, and that there was a lot of continuing to spread of COVID. Meanwhile, other states were um, implementing shelter in place or social distancing measures. And so because people are moving freely about in the country, this is a challenge given that there is no blanket policy. And some of our states, South Dakota, are still um, not under any sort of shelter in place or social distancing measures. So it's um, people are at risk by moving between these different places. Has there been any attempt by a state to block entrance into it? So a state kind of like closing its borders to people from other states in the U.S.? So I know that there have been recommendations of states that if you come here, you must quarantine for 14 days. And I know that this was a lot in response to um, New York when New York went under lockdown, that um, a lot of New Yorkers went to second homes. Um, Some went to Florida, some went to upstate. 
And there were bans on people going to traditionally vacation areas like the Hamptons or Lake Tahoe. Um, they argued that if you come to this place and you are not, um, this isn't your primary residence, that you um, may have to pay a fine or something because they didn't have the hospital capacity if those people got sick. But again, these are all recommendations. Um, and as far as I know, I don't know of any people who have actually received the fine or any sort of punishment for their movement. Yeah, it's not like you, Lee, and your security barriers that we talked about last week, where you, I recommended that you tell the Israeli military officers you wouldn't you know, talk to them, and you told me that was probably a bad idea. That is yeah, that, 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 that would not work. Yeah, I mean, the difference in, in the U.S. Is, is legally the states actually can't stop people from other states from going anywhere. And, and fundamentally, the problem with shelter-in-place quarantines when you don't do them everywhere at once is the minute you announce them, you have to give people X amount of time, five hours, 10 hours, 24 hours before you put them in place because you just don't have the, the mechanisms and the, the military to roll out, essentially. So in that 24 hours or whatever it is before everyone is actually locked down, everyone just runs. And so then you actually yep. get a worse situation than it was before. And again, I, I know that Rhode Island was threatening to keep everyone from New York out, and so was Florida at one point. But again, legally, they can't do it as far as I'm aware. Again, not, not a lawyer, but also it, it wouldn't do any good. Yeah. And I know there was a lot of critique also of, um, I think, the cha unique challenges that colleges faced, that um, whether students stay on campus, whether they return home, that it might be safer to keep them on campus, but then what about all the people who work in facilities or dining halls that their lives um, are at risk? So in the end, most colleges um, decided to close down their campuses, but as a result, students were flying all over the country um, to wherever they were, where was their family. And so that was another response, which they think may have sort of spiked the number of cases because people were spreading it in terms of, okay, there's a lockdown in New York. People are fleeing and bringing it elsewhere. Um, colleges are being shut down. They're returning to their parents' house, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't think there was a good answer to any of these questions um, just because if you have no national response, you're just going to get a series of ad hoc attempts, um, which is kind of the problem. Exactly. Okay, so we talked a bit about uh, different levels of government, we might say, in terms of how they're responding to COVID-19. But could we return to the question about who suffers from it based on some of the other categories we were just talking about, race, gender, age, and income? Sure. So I think when COVID initially was hitting in China, there was a lot of attention to the fact that men seem to be suffering at um, higher rates than women. And in China, I think they were attributing that to the fact that I think between 50 and 60% of men in China smoke cigarettes, whereas like one to 2% of women do. And so given that this is a respiratory disease that having compromised lungs uh, may put someone at risk and high pollution rates in China in general may be exacerbating um, certain populations. Um, however, we've seen a little bit of that continue to play out even in other places where there isn't that type of uh, gender disparity in smoking. Um, so there are some people who are believing that women having two X chromosomes might be um, protecting them in some way from the virus. So th that's one element. Um, however, as we talked about earlier, the majority of service workers in the United States are women. So um, they are more likely to be essential workers. So people who are continuing to work um, and have higher rates of exposure. In terms of who is having higher rates of contracting the virus, their uh, morbidity or dying from the virus, their mortality, um, we're seeing disproportionately communities of color and the poor in the United States. And a lot of this similarly returns to what we were talking about earlier about environmental toxins, having compromised lung capacity, um, so having high rates of asthma, but also um, high, rate, high blood pressure, diabetes, um, high cholesterol have all been found as risk factors. And those are um, concentrated, particularly in poor communities and communities of color that have less access to fresh fruits and vegetables, being able to afford those things, having the time to cook, as opposed to often living in food deserts, which are areas that don't have grocery stores. Um, so they rely on fast food or gas stations for food supplies. So all of those people are 
health compromised and because of structural racism and inequality. But then there are also the people who are living in densely populated areas and apartment buildings, taking public transit to work, continuing to work. So for many reasons, they are at risk and then they are suffering greater complications. Yeah. So, I mean, to bring this back to the pre- to one of the previous questions about infectious diseases in general, it seems that COVID-19 is not different, right? It affects the same communities who would be inf- affected by other infectious diseases as well. So is there any surprising trends about COVID-19, something that we might not have expected before? Um, well, I think what is surprising is um, similarly to the I think it is drawing our attention to these inequalities that it preceded the virus about who has access to healthcare, where are there good hospitals, et cetera. Um, but in the language in the beginning, talking about death rates, people talked about, well, who's at risk? It's the elderly or it's babies. And in fact, they're finding that that is not necessarily the case, that people who appear to be in very good health are falling ill and dying. Um, and that there's a lot of different ways that the disease is impacting people's immune system. Some ways it's attacking the immune system. So some people with really robust immune systems are having the worst effect. So that is a surprising way. And But I think also the fact that we talk about that as a surprising way and when when people were more comfortable continuing to move around and when they weren't really shows what lives are valued in our society, that whose lives are expendable, that we can continue, we can protect the economy so long as it's only the elderly or the immunocompromised or the people in prisons that are going to suffer. But once us, that's this uh, affluent or privileged group is at risk, then we need to um, full stop, make some changes. So Yeah, no, it, it goes into... The need, I think, which I think is hard to do in the moment to some extent, but to look at cultural as well as simply, quote unquote, biological reasons why the disease is impacting people. And I think people are, it took a while, I think, as you're pointing out, for people to actually start exploring those dimensions, right? It's it's really easy for you to say, well, if you smoke, you're going to, you know, that's your choice, quote unquote, and thus biologically, you're going to be more susceptible. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And they've blamed the poor. They've said, well, you're, why are you doing these dangerous things like smoking cigarettes or consuming alcohol? And so it's blaming um, victims and sort of distracting um, our attention from the fact that this, these inequalities and exposure to health toxins, uh, residential segregation, that what, which communities have much higher rates of violence and trauma and policing, uh, what are the impacts of those um, as well as having not having access to healthcare and healthy food and a living wage, that those are structural conditions that are producing that stress that may be then coped with through um, smoking. So um, it's really redirecting our attention um, in a powerful way. And we saw even with the naming of um, COVID as the China virus or the Wuhan virus was similarly a governmental response to redirecting our attention from the their own ineffective response to blaming somebody else for um, the virus and for the people who are dying here. So one thing as well, I think that's become quite interesting throughout all of this is the different ways in which people are looking for cures, whether they're homemade or they're pushed by political figures. Um, or others, we'll leave it at that. But I was kind of curious, you've done some work on on biohacking. Would you mind explaining what that means first? And then we'll get to why I think this is important for this disease in particular. Sure, sure. So biohackers are sort of rogue scientists. Um, they conduct experiments in their garages or in makerspaces, community laboratories, And a lot of them do it collaboratively. They post their different strategies to these open source forums and really vary in terms of um, what they are seeking to accomplish. So I know one guy who is developing a cure for lactose intolerance, other people who are developing uh, affordable insulin um, to sort of counter the monopoly on insulin in this country and um, the price gouging of this necessary medication. So um, it's, it, there's, it's kind of a community, though also done independently, practicing science, developing vaccines and 
all sorts of things um, amongst people who are often have been trained in um, official academic or institutional settings, but for whatever reason or another have decided to leave the academy or the institution, um, believing that there have been unnecessary roadblocks or that the incentives are not in the right place. And um, they often self-characterize as um, trying to do science for the public good. How, how large would this community be? I mean, are we talking about like Dozens, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, broadly you know, speaking. T- yeah, it'd be tough for me to ask me. I would definitely say in the thousands. Um, it's it's an international community, and they have many different conferences and um, forums. So it's definitely in the hundreds or thousands. I would estimate because there are these there are these community laboratories all across the world in the United States in every major city, and there's multiple in Silicon Valley, some in Oakland, some in Santa Clara, Boston, New York, Seattle, Baltimore. You name a city, and there's probably um, one of these spaces that serve a lot of different biohackers. Have you been to one of these? Sure. Mm-hmm. What was it like? Yeah. Um, it's just like a typical place where you, they have like 3D printers available. There are classes. Um, they're doing this real vegan cheese movement where there can be people of all ages, kids coming to learn how to sort of how to do chemistry and sort of how to make things fun. So there are people, a lot of these um, spaces have been sort of utilized in response to COVID-19. You've seen it, people at home making face masks. Um, This is a form of DIY science or making their own hand sanitizer. There there was sort of hackathons to develop DIY ventilators, ventilators that could be made out of materials in hospital supply closets or um, using 3D printers in order to build some of the pieces. So they're, it's kind of like a community workshop. And so sometimes they organize courses for let's come together and work together on this project or have a hackathon, or it's just someone who's renting out space and they want access to um, whatever laboratory equipment that they might not be able to afford in their own garage. So this would be something like a makerspace. Yes. So are these people basically trying to come up with cures for COVID-19 and kind of spreading disinformation amongst each other? Yeah, sure. So um, I know there's several, I mean, I think any scientist who works in vaccines or medication has kind of been all hands on deck um, in response to COVID-19, which has been great. And the biohackers are definitely involved in that. Um, And I think particularly in the United States, we see without having this national response that it has felt like it has fallen to individuals to make their own masks, to procure their own hand sanitizer, et cetera. And so I think this has been a time, particularly when biohackers have sort of ramped up their efforts. And so I've seen on different community boards, people saying, I've been starting to work on this um, vaccine, who wants to pitch in and or an antibody test? And does anyone who had it want to volunteer to be tested to see how reliable it is, et cetera? So yeah, they definitely are participating in all of these initiatives as well. And this is something that they do on a daily basis. Have they have you seen stuff where people are asking about injecting themselves with Lysol or is that not <laughs> I think that they actually um are <laughs> they are scientists, so they understand that injecting yourself with um Clorox is probably not a solution to anything unless you wanna die. <laughs> yeah, but I think that experimenting on oneself or, or trying to use one own's body to find a cure is, is a theme that appears in several movies, for example, several movies about pandemics, about when scientists or more legitimate scientists decide that the bureaucracy is maybe too much for them and they want to expedite things. So they just inject themselves with a potential cure. And, and in the movies, it usually works. Yeah, I'm not sure about reality, but, but that idea is, is around. Are you thinking of World War Z, Lee? Also, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that movie. I did read the book, though, and I think it. It. I. There's been so many. Um, I read a lot of post-apocalyptic books, and so this moment in time has made me a little uneasy because I was like, "Is this the first chapter of like a post-apocalyptic world, or is this the final chapter of what have you?" But yeah, I, I agree. I think it's it, it's inspired that there's 
I know with the body hackers themselves, there's a book called Neuromancer by um, William Gibson, I think. Yeah, um, I, I, I read that book actually. Oh yeah, so that yeah. is like their Bible, and really, it's, it speaks to sort of the aesthetic of the community, but also towards some of the visions and science fiction. Octavia Butler is uh, her writing has really inspired Martine Rothblatt, who is this um, transhumanist. Um, so uh, there has been a lot of inspiration from science fiction in terms of what is possible um, and what are how do we augment ourselves um, and our world in different ways. And so those visions have provided a lot of utility. But yeah, I think to your point of, well, that's people are injecting themselves and these science fiction movies or books have inspired people. And I think there also is, there there is some element of, wanting to not wanting to harm somebody else that if this is something that we're doing on our own that it would be unethical to have inject your vaccine or whatever in somebody else without the proper clinical trials but to do it to yourself it's you have every right you want in the united states particularly to do whatever you want to your body i was gonna say good old rugged individualism yep wins the day again (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a global um, community in practice, but um, definitely has a stronghold in the United States. Okay. So, so we, we've taken quite a lot of your time so far and, and we're heading towards wrapping this up. But, but before we, we get there, I mean, you've worked in statistics and statistical agencies in the past. And we wondered if you could tell us a bit about how these agencies work. How do they collect data? How do factors such as race, class, gender play into the data that is collected? Sure. It's a, these are huge questions, obviously, but, but just like a brief answer would be fine. Sure. No, and I think it's an appropriate question to be asking right now because um, COVID-19 is happening during the decennial census. And the decennial census is um, conducted by the U.S. government once every 10 years as mandated by the Constitution. And... Um, It was supposed to be happening around the same time that we had this global outbreak, and they were anticipating to have the highest rate of participation, given um, that it was the first year to be conducted online. But obviously, COVID has really thrown everything into a loop in terms of the usually when the people don't respond, it's followed up by a face-to-face enumerator, someone who comes and knocks on your door and asks you these questions, and they've delayed that I think till June, but potentially longer out of fear for good reason of answering your door. College students, I think college towns will really suffer because students are usually counted where they are in college at the time, but now they won't be. Um, So, and the census determines funding for education and for roads and um, fire departments, et cetera. So um, I think there's a huge concern there and there's typically who responds, it's um, similarly tied to trust, who trusts the government, who trusts to respond accurately. If you are living in an apartment and the occupancy is um, restricted to four people, but you have six people, are you going to honestly tell the enumerator that you have six people living there because you might risk eviction? And although the enumerator claims that they won't tell your landlord, which they don't, um, the, these marginalized communities in particular, people are at risk, um, have good reason not to believe them. The U.S. government also doesn't have a good history. In 1940, the census data of racial data um, was used to um, round up Japanese Americans for internment camps. So um, this is part of the reason why the citizenship question was so contentious this year, because people would be fearful of responding to the census that um, would this track data be used to target certain communities. Um, So statistics data collection survey collection has a long history of trust. And so marginalized communities um, who have been at risk of surveillance and policing and um, all of these things tend to be undercounted across the board. Yeah, so this brings up a one thing at least I've seen statistically, which is we see all these mortality counts of how many people are dying in the United States and how horrific this is. And then there seems to be a sense that we're actually undercounting this as well. So Absolutely. One, yeah, so one question is, how how you know effective are our counting methods? I guess in general, maybe you can only speak to the census. Um, 
but how does that play into our sense of maybe disasters as a whole? Sure. Yeah. No, I think it's, um, it depends what we are counting of what is a fatality from COVID that is it, um, does someone have to be in a hospital in order to be counted? That there are many people who are dying at home, but there's also many people who they might be dying of unknown causes or given that COVID attacks people's immune system, that they might die of something else, but it was exacerbated by COVID. And the fact that we can't even trace COVID really gives us a poor sense for really being able to identify any of the deaths that are happening right now that potentially any of them might have been um, caused by COVID in some capacity. And then down the line, we can talk about um, what are the other effects, who is dying from it, not just from contracting the virus, but from food insecurity, from social isolation. I know um, Eric Kleinenberg wrote this book, Heat Wave, about the 1995 heat wave in Chicago and who disproportionately died. And a heat wave is not it's not considered as dramatic of an event as an earthquake or tornado. And so people don't think of it as this is um, a situation where many people die, but many people do. And disproportionately it's the elderly and the poor and interestingly men because they are more socially isolated. Um, And so when they are experiencing um, all sorts of, health issues that may be related to the heat, may be related to something else. It's more of the isolation that then can cause complications and death. So, so it, to take it back a few, a, a, about a minute or so, you're saying that there are different methodologies to, let's say, count deaths, right? And, and, and you can reach different number, different mortality numbers or different numbers of deaths, depending on your methodology. Sure. And that makes me think about Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico a couple of years ago, where the federal government declared that the number of deaths was somewhere below 100. I think it was like 60 or 70 or 80. And both the media and academia used different methodologies and reached much higher numbers, as in 3,000. I think they they finished off at about 3,000. I mean, that's like now the official death count of Maria. And I wonder how politicized are, are these methodologies, essentially. I mean, if, if you want to portray your, if the government wants to portray death, more, low mortality, they can choose one methodology. If someone else wants to critique the government, they can choose a different methodology. They can choose a different methodology that would result in much higher mortality counts. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we're really grappling with right now, that we don't have enough testing, we don't have accurate testing. And so there have been people who believe that this is a conspiracy, that there's a government interest in not having testing because that can keep numbers down. But if you only have 10 tests, then even if all 10 people have COVID, then you only have 10 people, um, only confirmed cases. So I think that is a huge concern. um, And I think people are still concerned with just the case count, not the mortality count. But I think as things progress and reflecting back on that, that will similarly be a concern that people who are dying in their home, who don't get counted, that um, it can they can minimize everything that happened. And um, censorship, I think, plays a huge role. I mean, I've been talking with our students about, everyone keeps talking about the Spanish flu of 1918. And while we don't know where it did originate, that there have been some people who believed it began in Kansas and that actually it was a result of censorship and not wanting to really hurt morale even more during um, the war. So I think, yeah, transparency and censorship play a huge role in terms of understanding the magnitude of a disease and who it's impacting and telling narratives about how effective a government response was. Yeah, it's actually, I've never, I mean, I've thought about it, but it it puts a different light maybe, at least for me, Lee, on our work on, say, pre-modern pandemics when, you know, we know numbers that are given, say, in the Justinianic plague are wholly unreliable, but not only are they wholly unreliable, but they're obviously politicized in various ways that we don't even know and can't even comprehend or understand because we can't, you know, 
interview the people behind the scenes, as it were, to ask why they chose what they chose. And it's easy for us to critique the people who wrote the texts 1,500 years ago, but as Michelle was just saying, some of these effects are around today as well, I and mean, the uncertainty and, and certain numbers that were given. Yeah, Absolutely. I mean, yeah, exactly. If, if quote unquote, we can't get it right today, as it were, right, whatever that even means, um, then certainly getting it quote unquote right in the past is even more problematic, if not impossible. Yeah. yeah. And I think there is, um, to a certain extent, it's impossible to remove bias from statistics. I think that that's something I often t- tell my students that we treat numbers as though they are these objective truths, but how you frame a question really impacts what you're going to get. Like, the census has um, separated the race question into a race and an ethnicity question. So it asks you first, what race are you? Are you white, black? Um, and then are you, are you his, Hispanic um, or Spanish origin? And so as a result, in 2010, we had an increasing white population. And so some people can read into that. Well, why do we have an increasing white population? Is it because we have fewer interracial relationships? Do we have X, Y, or Z? But really, it's just how the question was designed that it now people who are of Hispanic origin, that they had to, they were forced by the question to identify as white, even though many of them don't identify as white. And so absolutely, even in the counting of numbers that do we count only those people who received a test and were a confirmed COVID carrier or anybody who died of symptoms related to it or anybody who died at that time, because some people will be evicted and lose their housing um, or lose other things that may cause them to die, which is caused by COVID, but may not be counted in such a way. So scientists, the people who are collecting the data, they are making human decisions that change the numbers drastically. So I think this idea of even a right number is something I might lean away from a little bit. Yeah, I think for someone who's been trained in the humanities, I think we, broadly speaking, in the humanities, we're kind of missing on a lot of the literacy, the data literacy that you were just talking about. I mean, we see numbers as much more concrete, absolute maybe, or at least that's my impression, like listening to other people speak. Yes and no, Lee. I think that there's a thing where we see numbers as more concrete, right? There's always the humanities joke of, at least when I said, you know, people use numbers, they always just say, well, I wasn't good at math in high school, right? whenever they're talking about numbers, which I see all the time. (laughs) But I also think at the same time that there's a sense of, you know, we can't trust the numbers to begin with. So I do think there's a a criticism that immediately comes in. Even if if we're not trained on how to use statistics, I think at least I often see humanities scholars basically throw out numbers from the beginning. Yeah. And I think we as a culture, particularly in the United States, I can't speak to the world, but I would surmise it's happening in other places that we really fetishize numbers because we want this absolute truth. And we see the fetishization playing out in um, algorithms today that will with big data and wanting to be able to come up with an easy solution um, to manage lots of people in lots of ways and that we treat algorithms and um, big data is objective, that they couldn't possibly be racist or discriminate against people. But again, there are people who code, people who make decisions that, okay, we want to um, put more police officers in an area with higher crime. How do we make those decisions? And there are humans making those decisions that then result in an algorithm that is automatically Um, making these um, choices, but there are humans behind that. And I think that's the same thing with statistics, that we only see the number, but we don't see what was the question that was asked or who were the sample of people who were asked, were those representative? And so the number really obscures the human element to all of this data collection. So that wraps up our interview. Thanks so much, Michelle. That's been a really insightful and wonderful conversation. I've learned a ton about um, health disparities and ways we approach health and sociology in America, both before, during, and God willing, after this pandemic. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. This has been a fascinating conversation. Yeah, thanks. And and we hope to have you again at some point to, to keep on some of these conversations. I think we've just skimmed the surface on several very, very interesting and relevant topics. Absolutely. 
So I thought that was uh, actually quite insightful. And I learned a ton, especially uh, that last discussion about numbers and about disasters and mortality and how we count and that kind of stuff. That was interesting. Made me think a lot about um, our own work on demography and mortality rates in the pre-modern world. Yeah, I think there are a lot of similarities. As in the last part of the discussion, the problems we historians look at the past and identify in the past, I mean, all these questions about, I don't know, as an example, how did historian X, Procopius, let's say, how, how does he know the numbers that he cites? And we can keep on discussing these things within the humanities, within the, the discipline of history. But I think what Michelle was saying earlier on is that these discussions are, are still held today in, in government, government, academia, media. Yeah, I think we internalize perhaps as medieval and late antique historians that today we have answers, you know, quotes around it, to many of these questions that we theorize. But in fact, they don't have answers anymore today than we do in our period. Um, and a lot of it is just modeling and thinking through of some of the same problems and ideas. Yes. So, so that was definitely an interesting point. I mean, to, to hear someone who's actually worked on this in, in government, in a sense, the, and essentially acknowledge that these are real problems. I think it's, it's different from, from just reading about these problems. Yeah, well, not even government in a sense, right? She worked at the Census Bureau. That's about as statistical in the government as you can possibly get in the United States. Um, and that yeah. these questions are still pressing. Yeah, so, so that, that was a good point I felt. I also felt that differentiating between different groups that get infected at different rates is useful. I mean, for late antiquity, our specialty, you don't really get that kind of nuance just because we don't have the sources. But I think it is useful to keep in mind that we're used to say that diseases kill people equally and don't differentiate between uh, different classes or different genders or, or different professions, let's say. But in reality, as she said, they do. Yeah, no, that's a, a very good point. I think it actually ties in very well to what Phil mentioned kind of offhand um, in his work last week which I think you brought up, which was the cultural versus the biological reasons why people may or may not get plague. And he went into some of the, the, the sex and gender reasons behind that over why that might be the case. But I think Michelle very, very clearly laid out the importance of the cultural factors in all of this. And I think that's something that perhaps to some extent is, I mean, I think not even perhaps, is definitely missing in the Justinianic plague conversations, for sure. It sounds like from Phil, there's a bit of work on this, definitely a bit of work on the Black Death, but this actually is something, uh, a gender angle, a sex angle, that we could actually bring to our own work in our own field a lot more. Yeah, and I think for, for the third pandemic, which is a future episode we're going to have in the near future, I think we would see a similar effects, so, so similar cultural effects on, let's say, mortality at least in certain areas that I know of based on stuff I've read. Yeah, and I think that's something we should definitely bring forward in, in that conversation. Yeah. Okay, so following the tradition, we'll finish today's episode by discussing how we're keeping our houses neat and tidy or supposed to keep our houses neat and tidy. So what are you doing, Merle, to keep your house all clean? I know you mow the lawn. I know yeah. you, you learned how to mow the lawn last year. And you know what I bought this year, Lee, as a birthday present to myself? No. What have you bought? A lawnmower? <laughs> no, I already bought a lawnmower. Jesus, like, we discussed that. No, I bought a weed whacker. So I now can do the, the edges very nicely. They were getting very overgrown. So I'm very proud of myself now. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown up, as I told my wife the first time I used it last weekend. Um, so you mow your lawn every week or so? Yeah, I mean, it depends on, you know, rain and that kind of stuff, but basically every week. Um, and then now I can weed whack the edges, so that makes me feel better. And then in between, I tidy up various parts of it that are getting overgrown, clip back bushes, that kind of stuff. So how, how much time does it take you per week, let's say, to just invest in your lawn? Uh, I mean, it's 
this weekend will be the telling weekend because I just got the weed whacker last weekend. So that took me a while to weed whack because there was a lot of problems. But I can mow the back lawn, not that big, in, I don't know, 20 minutes and then probably weed whack yeah, that, for That's not 20. bad. No, yeah, no, that's no. That's not bad. No, it's not, it's not the end of the world. I mean, it takes less time than cleaning up after, you know, toddlers in my house destroying it, right? I mean, I literally have to sweep and vacuum. I should vacuum after every meal in my downstairs. <laughs> what about you? I know, you, you know, you, you have no outdoor space and no sun, we've learned. Yeah, yeah, no outdoor space, no sun. We don't have carpets like the the regular floor carpets. We just ha- we we bought carpets to put in the house, but but otherwise, I mean, the, the floor is tiles, just like stone tiles. Yeah, we don't clean as much as we should, probably. I mean, we're just we feel we're super busy just being parents, being new parents. It, it just takes so much time. Yeah. Okay, so. so Cleaning the house is definitely not a priority at this point in time. And there are no guests, so nobody really cares. As I've said to you, think of it as a positive. I don't think I cleaned my house when my kids were born. So it's not that differently. Yeah. I mean, you just, you know, there are certain things you got to drop, right? That ends up being one of them. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. And it's not, it's not that bad, but uh, we, we probably should clean our house some point soon that's fair maybe this podcast will have given you the incentive to do it now (laughs) yeah i will so to preserve my reputation i will say that i'm still working out every day so i'm currently at like 40 straight days or so i've stopped counting but it is definitely more than a month so I'm, i'm proud of that so i might not be cleaning but i am working out Okay, so I guess that on this uh, cleaner note, we can probably conclude our episode. Until next time, stay safe, stay indoors, and maybe unlike leave, remember to vacuum your house every once in a while.